Good afternoon. It's always very uh, dangerous to speak to a group of people after lunch. So, good luck trying to stay away. If you feel yourself being slain in the spirit, just, just go down. That's okay. I won't be offended. I would like to uh, speak this afternoon about abandonment. And I want to I, I call this talk, Letting Go of Your Life. This is, a, I believe, a very important theme, and we don't really hear a lot about it. Um, but it seems to be very important, and as I'll explain. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be with us this day, that you would enlighten us and guide us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds to your presence, to your way of seeing, to your way of thinking. Mary, we ask you to intercede for us now and all the days of our life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. This is a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said, Do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his lifespan? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed, arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be yours as well. There's a story about a, a young man and a hermit. This hermit was living by a river somewhere in a, in a hermitage. And this young man recently had a conversion and he heard about the reputation of this hermit. And so he wanted to seek this, this holy man out and, and sort of follow him, learn from him. 
And one day when the young man found the hermit, he was sitting by a river. And this young man says to the hermit, he says, I want to follow you. And the hermit says, well, what is it that you want? What is it that you desire? And the young man said, I desire God. And so the hermit just paused for a moment. He took this young man by the head and stuck his head under the water. And it was getting to the point where the young man wasn't able to breathe. He was, his life was flashing before him. And finally this hermit pulls this young man out of the water and he throws him onto the ground. And he asks this young man, he says, tell me, when you were underwater, what did you desire most? And the young man says, air. And the hermit says to him, when you desire God as much as you desire the air, come back to me. I remember the first time I heard that story, I was utterly discouraged. <laughs> Now, the point of that story is not to discourage you, but I want to ask you a question about that story. Is there anything wrong with that young man? As his life is, is flashing before him, is it wrong that he desire, desires air? Of course not. He's utterly human. Right? He's each one of us. Do you think you would be any different if that was you? I did for about a week in my life when I was very young and naive. <laughs> but I know better now that if I were held underwater, what I would desire more than anything would be air. But what if there was one among us who, when they were, in a sense, tested, would desire the other more than their own life. Because, in fact, there is. And it's Jesus. Jesus really is the only one who would fulfill that story. Remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And the greatest proof we have of this is the cross. This is the place where Jesus, in a very real way, chooses us over air, over his own life. And so, <clears throat> what does all of this mean? It means, quite simply, that God loves us. 
You know, it's kind of wrong to say we love God. We do. I know we do. But not in the way God loves us. I don't love God the way he loves me. You know, I have given up. Sometimes people say to me, well, you know, you've given up everything, a family, a career, and all this other thing. And my response is always, you know, it's really nothing. It's nothing compared to the love that has been shown to me. St. John says, in 1 John, he says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the expiation for our sins. So, of course, we love God, but not the way God loves us. It's infinitely more. And this is really the Christian understanding of reality. You are loved. Get over it. <laughs> Love is the background. It's the foundation of our lives. And I, I bring this up because before we can talk about letting go, which can sound so scary, before we can talk about abandoning ourselves to another, let alone God, we have to acknowledge that which sustains us, namely God's love. About a year ago, <clears throat> I was flying from, uh, I was in Montana, I was doing a couple of retreats and I was flying from <clears throat> Montana to Colorado and then Colorado to, to Newark. And the flight from Montana, obviously Montana is very small, so the plane was even smaller. <laughs> and we're, it was maybe like a two hour flight to Colorado into Denver. And as we're descending into the airport in Denver, Everything is smooth, right? Everything is going fine. And this whole time on this plane ride, I was, I was looking at my calendar and I was responding to a lot of different preaching requests. So in some sense, I was like planning out my whole year. Okay, I'll do this in November. I'll say no to this in February. And I was planning out my whole year. <clears throat> well, as we're descending, all of a sudden, we're going along and all of a sudden there's this Boom, there's this loud bang. And the plane <clears throat> just goes up and, and comes down. And it feels like, I don't know, maybe we've just gone up and fallen like 200 feet. It's probably like five feet, I don't know. But it felt like a lot. And so what had happened was we hit a pocket of turbulence. And they always say over the Rocky Mountains there's a lot of turbulence. But nonetheless, it was, it was pretty intense. So the lady next to me, I think she was kind of an older Jewish woman, she grabs my hand and she says, she says, Father, we're going to die. <clears throat> the guy next to me had a huge cup of coffee and that went flying everywhere, all over my habit. I got coffee stains on my habit, some Jewish woman holding my hand thinking we're going to die. 
<clears throat> and I don't, I don't really have time to react. I'm trying to, cons- I'm trying to wipe off the coffee, console this woman. <clears throat> and sure enough, within like 10 seconds, the plane had regained its composure, even though all those in the, in the plane didn't. <clears throat> And we landed with no problem. And when I got to the airport, and I got to my next gate, I had maybe an hour layover, and everything was kind of calm, I realized my legs and my hands were shaking. And I realized something I've always known in my mind, but it really occurred to me how little control I have of my life. There I was thinking I had the whole next year planned out, right, what I was going to do. And obviously we need to do that, we need to prepare for life, but beware of turbulence. (laughs) And I also discovered, I think the reason why I was so shaken was not so much at the possibility of dying, although that's obviously... (laughs) Not, I'm not excited about it, but it, because I realize how much I like to think I'm in control. And that in some sense, I'm a, I'm a control freak. You know, I would say I'm a passive control freak. You know, I, I won't necessarily say anything, but inside, wow, <laughs> pretty impressive. The funny thing about control freaks is that they're always the last to know. Right? Everyone who lives with them knows <laughs> that they're a control freak. <laughs> and on some level, we all are, right? To some extent. Some of us are more than others. But we are because I think when we think of control, we think peace, security. When quite honestly, Being a control freak leads to fear and anxiety. Because of this basic fact, we have very little control of our lives. I saw a bumper sticker just yesterday. I almost had a pullover. I was laughing so hard. The bumper sticker said, exercise all day, eat right, and you get the same result, you die. (laughs) There's some truth to that. I mean, (laughs) I recommend you take care of yourselves, of course. But in the end, (laughs) we all have the same destiny. You might remember in the book of Daniel, there's this episode where King Nebuchadnezzar tries to force the three Jewish youth, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to worship a golden statue. And he says, if they don't, if these three Jewish kids do not worship this golden statue, he's going to kill them. He's going to throw them into the fiery furnace. And I love how these kids respond. It's, chapter, it's Daniel chapter 3, verse 17. But this is what, what they say to this king. They say, There is no need for us 
to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If God chooses to save us, then great. But if not, well, great. We will not serve these other gods. And then they say, there is no need for us to defend ourselves before you. I find that it's such a powerful line. There is no need for us to defend ourselves before you. We are so quick to defend ourselves. Anxiously waiting to explain or to post on Facebook or whatever why we think the way we do, why we act the way we do, why we said what we said. Perhaps in some circumstances, it is necessary to defend ourselves. But perhaps in many circumstances, there is no need to defend ourselves. Why do these three young men say that? They say that, I believe, because of what St. Paul says in Romans. When he says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. In other words, whether we are sick, whether we are healthy, whether we are rich, whether we are poor, whether we are understood or not understood, whether we are appreciated or not appreciated, whether our flight is smooth or we have heavy turbulence, we belong to the Lord. And nothing can take that away. It comes down to this basic question. Are we in the hands of God or not? Do you believe, do I believe, that we are in the hands of God or not? Because if we're not, well, then we better hold on. We better defend ourselves. But if we are, then we can let go. I think there are two mentalities or two principles that are at work here. The first is, maybe, it's, maybe a better way to say it is a sort of a disposition before life. The first is what I like to call the self outside of God. What does that look like? Well, it's essentially a philosophical, worldly mentality. 
It says that we live this life alone. We live this life separate from God. And so we have to be strong. We have to be competitive. Or else we'll be swallowed up by life. Only the strong survive. You know, many people who sort of live this way, they believe that, that God exists, but he's, he's out there. He's almost in the bleachers as we're running through our life. God is kind of watching on the bleachers, not helping us, but critiquing our performance, writing down every fall we have along the way writing down every mishap that we have along the way. And so I can't abandon myself to God. I can't abandon my life to God because he's out there somewhere. And I hate to say this, but this is the way many Christians live. The self outside of God. The second disposition, the one that I recommend, is what is almost referred to as the biblical mentality, which is the self in God. And basically what that says is that God is not separate from our life. Again, St. John says, we are of God. In this mentality, God comes down from the bleachers and runs with us through life. When we fall, when we get tired, when we don't think we can make it anymore, It's he who picks us up, who encourages us. And when we give up, he picks us up and puts us on his shoulders. Isn't this what Jesus says about the Good Shepherd? That when one is lost out of 99. He leaves the 99 in search of the one who is lost. And when he finds him, he puts that lost one on his shoulder and brings it home rejoicing. So what does letting go of your life mean? It doesn't mean not participating in life. It means quite the opposite. It means participating in your life, in every aspect and detail of your life, living your life with all of its responsibilities and all of its commitments, but trusting that you are in the hands of God.
Despite what you might think, despite what you might feel, despite what you might experience, despite maybe what other people say, despite what the culture tells you, despite maybe what you have done, Why do we think this? Because this is exactly what Jesus tells us. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like any of these. If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You know, the best proof of this is your own life. You don't need to take a theology class. You don't need to have a degree in theology to validate if Jesus' words are true. Consider your own life. How did you get where you are today? It can't just be because of our talents or our intelligence or our gifts or random circumstances. The logical answer is that he has placed us on his shoulders, that he has come down from the bleachers to run with us. But this doesn't mean an easy life. Jesus never, ever promises an easy life. I hate to tell you, but there is no such thing as a prosperity gospel. On every page of the gospel, Jesus promises the cross to those who follow him. And you know, it's, it's kind of ironic, but the most peaceful people I know the most peaceful people I've met in my life are not people whose lives are free of suffering, trial, or heartache. Oftentimes, it's quite the opposite. You know, if, if our lives were ever what we want them to be, it would be so miserable. We have an image and an idea of what a perfect life looks like. And thank God that doesn't exist. Because it's so small compared to the vision God has for our life. These people I've mentioned who are peaceful, who have very challenging lives, they're peaceful because they trust, not because they don't experience heartache or pain or misfortune, 
But because they trust, and because they have let go, they have let go of trying to control, of trying to manipulate, of trying to make life be in their favor. We are in God. No matter who you are. If you want misery, if you want restlessness, if you want anxiety, try living as if God existed out there in the bleachers. Try living as if God was only present to your neighbors and not you. Try living as if God is separated from your ordinary life. It's the perfect recipe for misery. Many years ago, I was finishing a retreat at a, at a Trappist monastery. And it was the last day of the retreat. And I came back to the retreat house and it was maybe it was like 15 minutes until lunch. And so I stopped in the chapel for a few minutes. And when I, when I came into the chapel, I noticed there was a, a woman sitting about maybe five feet away from the tabernacle. And when I came in, we sort of looked at each other and smiled and I went, like a good Catholic, I sat in the back of the church, and we smiled, and I put my head down, and I looked up again at her maybe a second later, because I noticed something that I thought was strange. And what I noticed was that this, this woman was sewing, or sorry, knitting. Right? I don't know what she was knitting, maybe a sweater. But she was knitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And immediately... I start this dialogue in my mind about how strange this is and this is a chapel, can't you like do, do that somewhere else and you know <laughs> all these other things, you know not that knitting's not an intrinsic evil or anything, but I'm like in the chapel, I mean, come on lady um, and so I was so distracted by my commentary on this situation I went out and I went into the uh, the, the kitchen had lunch and I go outside with my lunch and I sit down and I look out and there's just, just this beautiful field and as of right I was about to take my first spoonful of food I heard a voice that said to me if you loved me the way that woman did you would not be embarrassed to knit in front of me I don't feel bad for her, I feel bad for me. <laughs> it was as clear as day. If you loved me the way that woman did, you would not be embarrassed to knit in front of me. I think what God was trying to teach me was that this woman's whole life was lived in God. Whereas mine was still compartmentalized. I had prayer time. I had social time, whatever, work time. 
But it seemed to me that for this lady, it was one. She was living one life. So if she was sewing or knitting, why not pray? Why not talk to the Lord? It was a very valuable lesson that I think I'm, I'm still sort of learning. And it reminds us of, a, of an important fact. How do we begin to let go and abandon ourselves to God? Well, I would just like to say maybe one, one suggestion. All genuine spiritual practice begins by living in the present moment. And the reason is because God is so concrete. He is so practical. It's us who make him so complicated. God is right here, right now. Tomorrow doesn't even exist yet. And the past is gone. And yet those are the two places we tend to live. To really live in the present moment is to surrender to God. Surrender to God now as He really is. Not as we think He might be in a month from now or when I have this difficult conversation with someone in my family in a week. But right now. The present moment is like a text message from God that says, hello, I'm here. <laughs> Where are you? I don't want this to sound harsh, but I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. But do you know what the problem with Christians are sometimes? The problem is we're too spiritual. What do I mean by that? I, so I've experienced this in religious life. Sometimes we can be so concerned about our prayers about our spiritual practice, about growing in holiness, that we are often blind to the person next to us who is suffering, who is lonely, or who is depressed. Because we're so caught up in our spiritual life, in our relationship with God. We miss God sitting right next to us. I'm not sure if I should say this, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> I get nervous when I meet someone who's in ministry who has never suffered or who is not aware of their own poverty, who has all of the head knowledge, all of the right answers, 
but not the lived experience, not the encounter with God. Because I think, how will they ever help someone? Genuine holiness means becoming awake. It means becoming alive to everything and everyone around us because life is permeated with the glory of God everywhere. Mother Teresa found the glory of God in Calcutta, one of the most miserable places on a human level that you could imagine. And it was there she discovered the glory of God because she was awake because God had so lifted her soul and her spirit to her, to him. You know, if the only time we experience God is in chapel or in church, then I would say something is missing from your spiritual life. Certainly here in a chapel with the Eucharist is a privileged place to be and to pray. Yet it's not the only place. Sometimes, you know, there's this joke that when, as soon as Catholics get in the parking lot, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> it's like, what just happened? And so in order to let go of our life, we have to start abandoning it to God moment by moment. Being content sometimes with not seeing, with not knowing and understanding. You know, God may give us insight. He may give us consolation and understanding. But most of the time, he doesn't. At least he doesn't for me. I have no idea what I'm doing. 99% of the time. St. Paul says, we walk by faith, but not by sight. And so living by faith means letting go of your life, trusting that God loves us, that God loves you, that you are in Him. You know, Julian of Norwich says, all will be well. When you know Christ, when you know, as St. Paul says, the power of His resurrection, not only will all be well, but all is well. The storms, the confusion, and the suffering of life are temporary. But as Jesus reminds us, even in those things, God is still in control. And there is nothing to be afraid of.
we can let go of our lives. It doesn't mean being irresponsible or neglecting our, our duties or our responsibilities. But it does mean letting go of the hold that we sometimes place on those things or on the people in our lives. And trusting that we do our best. We walk by faith and not by sight. But believing that God has come down to us from the bleachers. And he walks with us through every moment of our life. Amen.